Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, we will be in verses 6 to 16 here in just a moment. And um, if you recall, last week I said I've gotten to a section of Scripture that I dread. Uh, I'm still here, and uh, we're still here. But uh, we, we've come to a section of Scripture that requires some sensitivity in handling the material. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the best way to present this. And uh, two topics that Paul addresses in this section have caused heartache and pain and misery and questions in many people's lives. And those two topics are singleness and divorce. My guess is, or, well, let me say this. Divorce, they say, it will be the end result of about 50% of the marriages in the United States. And I would guess that divorce has affected every family sitting here in this uh, sanctuary in one way or another. And so as we work through this material, I don't have some kind of detailed, uh, catchy outline. Well, if you know me, you know I, I never have anything like that at all. But uh, rather, we're, we're going to work through these verses topically, and I'm not really going to preach. I'm just going to teach. What do these verses mean? What's going on here? I can't think of any other way to present it. And so there's, there's three topics. The first one is singleness is the gift of God. Secondly, divorce and the word of God. And third, marriage and the gospel of God. That's the only way I know how to frame this. So with with that, if you'll stand with me as we, we read God's word. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she is to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband." Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, uh, that uh, scripture is so complete in the way it teaches about, uh, about you and how that we are to 
act and what we are to think. I, I pray that we will deal with the sensitive topic in such a way that, first of all, you are honored and glorified. Secondly, that matters are cleared up. And third, that people will be comforted. Help me to say only those things that are pleasing to you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, without any other kind of introduction, let's just jump into the first point here, which is this. If you can remain single, it is a gift from God. That's basically what, what Paul is saying in these first four verses, verses sixteen or 6 to 9. If you remain single and not burn with passion, then you have the gift of singleness. Now, Last week, we touched on what some of the Corinthians were saying. There were Corinthian hardliners, you remember, who were saying that um, celibate singleness not only is one possibility, but it's the only possibility for a Christian. It ought to be normal for every Christian everywhere to seek, those who seek and to follow Jesus, to attain to celibacy. For them, it seems that sex was, in any circumstance, was inherently unclean and wicked. And therefore, to live a holy life, one must live like an aesthetic, free from bodily passions and free from sexual appetites. That seems to be what some of the hardliners were were saying, and we, we talked about that last week. Now, Notice something very carefully, verse number six, what Paul is doing. Paul is commending singleness, but he's not commanding it. He says this, now as a concession, not a command. So singleness is not commanded no matter what the hardliners were saying. We know that is true, and we know that it's important for people to be married. That If it's not a gift, don't pursue it. And one of the ways that we know it is just to look at the long and ugly history of the sex scandals in the Roman Catholic Church. Am I right? I mean, to, to command that somebody be single and celibate when they should be married and going beyond Scripture is a recipe for disaster. Now, I want to say this. You may not know this, but there is some evidence, circumstantial evidence, that Paul may have been a widower or even even possibly divorced. Now, why do I say that? Well, there are two circumstances that lead us to believe that he may have been married at one time. First of all, he was a Pharisee, and it was normal for Pharisees to be married. Uh, that That was a pressure they exerted on one another. But not only that, but he was a member of the ruling body, the, the Sanhedrin. And it was required that the Sanhedrin be married. And so Paul may have been married at one time. So by the time he wrote 1 Corinthians, perhaps he was already a widower. Or perhaps even his wife left him and divorced him. Which, by the way, if this were true, then verses 12 to 16 were more than just some abstract advice or teaching from Paul. It would make them, in fact, a a very painful personal history as well. And so it's at least profitable that, or probable, I'm sorry, that when Paul talks about marriage and singleness here, 
He's not writing as some confirmed bachelor who is uncomfortable around women or doesn't like women or whatever, okay? Uh, he doesn't have some phobia about women. Rather, he is writing possibly as a person who has deep scars of loss and who wants to spare his beloved Corinthians the same amount of pain. Now again, this is only speculation. We don't know this. We're, we're going from circumstantial information that we know. But we do know this. Paul thinks differently about singleness than our culture does today, doesn't he? The world around us thinks that to insist on celibacy in singleness, as Christian scriptures clearly do, if you're single, you're to be celibate. That's what scripture teaches, right? That to, to think that way is to condemn singles to an incomplete life, all right? It's what our world teaches. That's the world's perspective, and somehow... Under the, the pressure of that point of view, sing, people who are single often feel a deep restlessness and dissatisfaction with their life. We find contentment hard to come by. And let's face it, there are times when the, the church doesn't help much either, does it? Because if you're a longtime church member, you grew up in a church or whatever, while the world pushes you towards sexual ethics that are unbiblical, the church pressures you to marry as soon as possible. And you can be left with the distinct impression that as a single person in the church of Jesus Christ, you are somehow deficient and, and you need to do what you really need to do. In order to really belong, you need to be married as soon as humanly possible. And so there's no question that singleness today, whether you're, um, whether you're feeling, it, it, well, I'm sorry, singleness today brings a lot of pressure, whether you're uh, feeling the pressure from the world or you're feeling the pressure from the church. It can be tough going. Now, I want us to look at verse number seven and look carefully at what Paul says that singleness is about. He says this, he says, singleness is a gift. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, that's probably a gift that many of us are hoping to never receive, isn't it? The gift of singleness. The word translated gift, though, is a very interesting word for us to remember in this context. It's extremely common, this word. The word translated gift is oftentimes translated in the Bible as grace. We can translate that word grace. And I think that helps us some. Because what Paul is saying is that if God in his providence is calling you to a single life, he will give you the grace that you need in your singleness. He will give you satisfaction and he will give you contentment and usefulness in your service for Jesus Christ if God is calling you to singleness. Now that really helps a lot, I think, doesn't it? And Paul is quick to qualify his teaching, though, in verse number nine, that not everybody is called to singleness. Look at verse number nine. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now, Paul is laying down some very important twin truths. Get these truths down if you can. And that these are this. These truths are, number one, chastity in singleness, and number two, faithfulness in marriage. Chastity in singleness, faithfulness in marriage. That's the pattern of the Christian life. And the gift of God is differently distributed according to his divine purpose. And that's what makes all the difference. Celibate singleness and faithfulness in marriage together are paths to faithful obedience to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ for which he will give us the grace we need that we can honor him, that we can be satisfied and contented in a life of service, whether that is celibate singleness or being faithful in marriage. What a wonderful truth that is, isn't it? That means that, well, I'll get to that application, sorry, but let's move on. Let's move on to the second point, and that is this, divorce and the truth of God, divorce and the teaching of God. Now, I want you to take your Bibles because I want to show you commonly misunderstood phrases in the Scripture. I want to clear this up because I think a lot of Christians have some confusion wondering what this means. Look at verse number 10. He says, to the married I give this charge. And then in the ESV, it's in parentheses, it says, not I, but the Lord. Okay, so Paul says, not I, but the Lord. Now look at verse number 10, or 12, I'm sorry, 12. He says, to the rest I say, and then in parentheses, I, not the Lord. Now what's going on here? It's really very simple. It's very simple to understand. In verse number 10, when he says, not I, but the Lord, he is reminding them of familiar teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, He's not quoting Jesus exactly. He is instead paraphrasing the sum of Jesus' teaching. There, as best we know, there were no gospels written at this time. There were no gospels. They were written a little bit later than 1 Corinthians. And so Paul is, is, is teaching, is reminding them of the teaching of Jesus. So what's going on here? There's no doubt that the early church not only had access to the teaching of Jesus, but they memorized some of the teachings of Jesus through the apostles who actually heard. Remember, the apostles were going all over, all over the world, and they were telling people, I was with Jesus three and a half years. This is what he taught. I know what he taught. And, and so uh, the church had access to the teachings of Jesus. Now think, if you had no scripture and you had nothing else, would, New Testament scripture, I'm sorry, would not what they verbally said be very precious to you? Like what we're talking about today. I am the way, the truth, and life. That would be such precious teaching. And so they would memorize that. And so the church had memorized a lot of teachings of Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 10, 12, 
He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so Paul is paraphrasing the words of Jesus here. He's saying, don't separate, don't divorce. If you do, don't remarry or else be reconciled. And so he's referencing Jesus' words when he says, this is not I, but the Lord. Now go down to verse number 12, and he says something a little bit different. He says, I, not the Lord. Now this is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. He is telling them, I am not paraphrasing Jesus here. I am now teaching in in my own teaching in my office as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He references the words of Christ when he wants to be clear, and then when he's citing another source, and then he makes it very clear that he's speaking in his own office as an apostle. And let's be clear about something. This is what I want to clear up. Both of these teachings are authoritative. One is from Jesus Christ. The other is the authoritative teaching as the apostle of Jesus Christ. But Paul is not willing to play fast and loose with the sources and try to claim the authority of Christ's recorded saints for something that he himself is teaching. Now, what Paul is beginning, about to say, and this is very important for us to understand, everybody, um, he's not giving a, a treatise on divorce. He is responding to very pointed questions that the Corinthians had. Okay, that's all he's doing. He's not doing anything else. It's in response. Um, He's addressing very specific concerns, and these are the concerns. Some of the Corinthians were saying that celibacy is best even in marriage. And if you cannot remain celibate in marriage, then if you really want to remain celibate, then divorce is the best option. That seems to be what he's pushing back against, okay? If you're going to maintain holiness and you can't be celibate in marriage, then divorce your spouse. And this is what Paul says in verses 10 and 11. Look at them together. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, verse number 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So, we have verses 10 and 11. There's one more thing I need to clear up in verse number 10, if you will. Verse number 10, notice what he says in the ESV. It says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, you need to understand that they did not have the legal distinction that we do of separation and divorce, okay? The word separate was a euphemism for divorce back then. There was no two-stage like what we have today, separation, divorce. This word uh, separate is often used to speak of divorce. So Paul is issuing a call here to marital fidelity. He is arguing that if you divorce on grounds such as this, then you ought not to remarry. Now, let me say this. Paul has left a lot unsaid. We, we have questions 
that Paul simply is not dealing with here. He's responding to Corinthians' particular circumstances, and we have these questions that um, remain unanswered. What about those who have divorced and remarried and they, um, when they ought not have done that? Or is there, is there no hope for them? I, I've had people come to my office and say, am I permanently now under the wrath of God because I divorced unjustly? How do you answer that kind of a question? Or what about those who have remained in a marriage when to do so has been unspeakable and painful? What about them, Paul? We probably all know people in circumstances like that, don't we? He's not addressing any of these kind of circumstances. But I will say this. I will acknowledge that some of you struggle with pain and failure in a complicated life based upon prior decisions about divorce and remarriage. And just remember this, just remember this, that even though you're dealing with the fallout from a messy, broken up relationship, Jesus Christ is really enough. And he has grace that you need in every circumstance. And we live in a day when divorce is cheap and easy and quick. And Paul is teaching, as Jesus did, that we are to hold the marriage vows in high regard. Now let's move quickly to the last topic, will, will you? Let's move quickly to this last one, verses 12 to 16. And that is marriage and the gospel of God. Marriage and the gospel of God. It would seem that some of the Corinthians were already married when they became Christians, while their partner remained unconverted, and thereby their partner remains in paganism. Now, when we get ready to read verses 12 to 16, I want to remind you of context. Everybody get this context, because this is why it's so important when I say that their partner remained in, in paganism. If you're a wife in the Greco-Roman Empire, Greco-Roman culture, I'm sorry, Roman Empire, Greco-Roman culture, uh, your husbands were in a world where they engaged in extramarital sexual relationships. That was common. They did this with slaves, with prostitutes, with consorts, courtesans, and it was possible that Christian wives were expected to endure such behavior on the part of their unbelieving husbands. And in that culture, you didn't divorce your husband because he was doing these things. Now, wives did the same thing to a lesser degree. It was not as approved with wives as it was with husbands, but it was definitely okay in the society because women, as I said last week, were a little more than property in the culture of the day. And so husbands could get away with it. So now you have this wife who's married to a guy who has all this behavior that she is now being taught from Scripture is wrong. Knowing and experiencing this, some in Corinth were saying this, not knowing Jesus is grounds for divorce. The unbeliever is surely a pollutant, a contaminant in your Christian life. You need to get out of that marriage if you're truly holy. That's what some in Corinth seem to be teaching. 
And Paul's response is this. He says, if the unbeliever is willing to remain in the marriage, then the believing husband or wife should not divorce them. Notice verse number 14. Look at verse number 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This is stunning. Think back to the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. What do you know about the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and, and New Testament teaching for the most part of the day? That if you as a clean person touch something that's unclean, what do you become? Unclean. There's a whole, whole ritual. In the church, the church itself is not to tolerate the unclean. It's, it's to try to sanctify the person who is sinning. If they are unwilling to be sanctified, they're to be put out of the church. And, and then what we have, and this is fascinating to me, and I wish I had more time to really uh, teach this. It's so fascinating. Who was the first person in Scripture who was able to touch the unclean and not become unclean? Jesus Christ, and somehow, and I'm going to dive into this very quickly, somehow in the marriage, that transference principle has come into being. Now let me explain specifically what's going on. This is stunning to me. In first century Judaism, there was a betrothal period, and betrothal was an Old Testament term you betroth your wife, right? Betrothal period became known eventually as this. When two people were betrothed, they were sanctified. So um, the, the, for, we would use the term engaged. So now the engaged person, people are sanctified. And what does that word sanctified mean? It means set apart, the word holy means set apart. And so they were set apart for one another and one another only. Set apart. No one else could have them. And in this situation then, transferring to this situation, when the unbelieving spouse um, is married to a believing Christian, they are still set apart to the believing spouse. And they're telling the believing spouse your unbelieving person that you are married to is sanctified. They're set apart. Therefore, they do not defile your marriage. They're set apart for your marriage. And the children, simply by being virtue of belonging to one believing per, uh, parent, also has that special status. They're not unclean. They're set apart to be children of you in a Christian marriage, one half of it. See what I'm saying? They're, they're set apart. They're special. Now, why would they, and I'm, this is not in my sermon notes, but I've got to say this. And I, I know I'm probably running out of time, but I, bear with me, okay? This is what I believe about Christian marriage um, that we see happen over and again. Most of the time, when somebody is converted as a child, they're converted in a Christian marriage. Why is that? Because God gifts your children to you 
so that you can share the gospel with them and he will work on their heart and they will become believers, right? And so these children, going back to Corinth now, one spouse is a believer, one spouse is an unbeliever, they're set apart in this marriage so that the believing spouse can teach their child the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and most likely be converted. Isn't that a, a wonderful privilege? Now remember that Paul's responding to the questions. And Paul says, now that with regard to the particular situation with which you wrote, where you're in a marriage where one of you has been converted, and what happens? Will the unbeliever make the believer unclean? Does, does this make the marriage invalid? Does it render uh, uh, offensive to God? And the answer is no. The flow of influence comes from the believer to the unbeliever in the circumstance, and the marriage has this sanctity that attaches it and makes it acceptable before the Lord. Not a context where just to be in the marriage means to be in sin, but rather a context where even though this is less than ideal to be in this kind of marriage, you can still be in a place of faithfulness to the Lord. Now remember that some seem to be saying that sexual relations with your unbelieving spouse defiled you and made you unclean. Paul's saying just the opposite. And by God's grace, the children of that marriage are not defiled either. Even in marriage, where the circumstances are less than ideal, Christians can be faithful and glorify God. Now, let's look at verse number 15. Verse number 15. Paul lays out one grounds for divorce. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Now remember the word separate is a euphemism for divorce. There's not this two-stage thing. The unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Um, that is, they may divorce without sin. Now, I personally believe that in this case, they may remarry in the same way that a widow or a widower is free to remarry. They are not enslaved. That's what he says. The marriage bond has been dissolved. They are not bound. They are not enslaved. And that means, just to be clear, that there are two circumstances for divorce in Scripture, right? Two. Number one, for example, there is adultery. Uh, Matthew 19.9, uh, Mark that we already quoted, mentions it. Jesus teaches that very clearly. And Paul here is given the second one. And the second grounds for divorce is abandonment of a believer by an unbeliever. And under those circumstances, Paul teaches that it may be that divorce is unavoidable. It may be less destructive to dissolve the marriage bond than try to force it together. Because he, he ends verse number 15 how? God has called you to peace. And if for whatever reason to divorce from the unbelieving partner, the unbelieving partner wants it, is, creates more peace than to stay together and fight all the time, then allow this to happen. Verse number 15. I know this is contrary to some people, uh, what they think. But don't glibly opt out of marriage because it seems easier that way. Um, who knows, maybe your quiet faithfulness, your prayerfulness, and your newfound peace, your lasting joy, um, 
Let, let me, I skipped a verse. Let's go to verse number 16 because I want to hit this. This is a note of hope. It's a note of hope. Look at verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? What is he talking about? He's saying that maybe your quiet prayerfulness, your newfound peace and your lasting joy, even in stormy, turbulent context, your kindness, your patience and your, your, the, with your unbelieving spouse, your witness to the transforming power of grace, maybe your testimony will win them to Christ by his grace. And when you find yourself in a marriage that is painful rather than joyful, when Christ is not shared between you, where there is this tragic disconnect that intrudes upon your unity, and you're called to so clean to Christ that your unbelieving spouse will see in you that Jesus is enough, that he's sufficient for you, that you believe the gospel and live in its light, and your unbelieving husband or wife will be unable to deny its truth and power. And uh, you may, in the context of all this pain, have the privilege of winning your spouse to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's hope through the gospel, isn't there? And let me say this. We have to be very careful about this. Um, I've, I've counseled so many unsaved spouses who they get saved and they're so excited and they're so joyful and they so want their spouse to get saved that they, they become the constant evangelist. And what that does is drive the spouse away. What we should do, rather give them the gospel, live the gospel, and from time to time give them the gospel again, but constantly live the gospel rather than be the, the constant evangelist, because that just drives them away. And so that, that is what I'm trying to say here, and I believe that's what Paul's saying as well. The same gospel that broke upon you and made you a new creature through you may yet break into your unbelieving spouse and break into your marriage and make it new. Remember, in every marriage, every Christian marriage, no matter how difficult there's always three of you. There's always three. There's you, your spouse, and there's Jesus Christ. You are not your own. With, uh, you're not on your own with your unbelieving spouse. Jesus Christ is there with you, and he is able, isn't he? He is able. So Paul's calling us to faithfulness in difficult places, but he calls us to remember that Christ is the one who strengthens us. And so there's hope in Jesus. Single, divorced, difficult marriage. There's strength in Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the change agent. May the Lord help us to live in light of his holy word and cling to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that makes marriage that's difficult bearable, that makes singleness where our heart aches something where we can find contentment. Jesus Christ is truly enough. May we 
learn that. May we internalize it. And may we apply it to every situation of our life, not just marriage and singleness and divorce, but everywhere. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.